coming up on crossing the lane lines. When we think of the civil rights movement, pools are usually not the first thing to spring to mind. But in his acclaimed book, Dr. Jeff Wiltsey educates us about this important issue in our nation's history. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. On Sunday, July 19th of this year, a mother and her son, both of whom are former competitive swimmers, were asked to leave a community pool in South Florida after another swimmer called the police on them for, quote, swimming while black. Three policemen arrived, shut down the pool, banned a caller who's white from the pool for three days, and the mother and son from the same pool for 24 hours. The mother, Jeanette Wright Muir, says she plans on holding a swim-in to protest the incident. The altercation that I just mentioned might be news to some of our listeners, but it's certainly not new to many swimmers of color, and in particular to black swimmers. To speak more on this issue, we're joined by Jeff Wiltsey. He received his PhD from Brandeis University in 2009 and teaches at the University of Montana in Missoula in the Department of History. He is the author of Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America, a book widely considered the seminal work on the subject, and is the winner of the Buck Dawson Award from the International Swimming Hall of Fame. Dr. Jeff Wiltsey, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Ah, it's my pleasure to be with you. Dr. Wiltsey, as I just mentioned in my introduction, the incident that I referenced is not new in this country, and certainly there is a long history of discrimination with respect to pools and access, but it wasn't always that way. I'm wondering if you can go back and talk about the origins of the municipal pools or baths, as they were called at the turn of the 19th century. Sure. So the very earliest uh, public swimming pools, municipal swimming pools, or I shouldn't say even swimming, the, the, the very earliest municipal pools in the United States date back to the late 19th century. And most of them, in fact, almost all of them were located in large northern cities. Like Boston had the very first one. There were some in Philadelphia, some in New York, later ones in Chicago. And as you indicated in the question, these very earliest pools were intended to serve as public baths. And you can think of them, or your listeners can think of them as essentially large public bathtubs. And cities provided them, and they located them in, in poor neighborhoods, what at the time were called slums. And the slums were inhabited by you know, poor um, and working class whites, immigrants. And there were relatively few African-Americans living in northern cities at the time, but, but those that were tended to live in some of these same poor slum neighborhoods. And in the housing in these areas didn't have um, baths, didn't have showers. And, and so for, for, for public officials to encourage and in fact enable the poor and the working classes in these industrial cities to be able to clean themselves, they needed to provide public baths. And so pools were, were one of the main instruments for enabling the poor and the working classes in northern cities to, to, to clean themselves. And, and what's particularly important, especially when we look forward to then the later history of public pools, 
is that was the, the, the social regulation of these bathing pools. Not surprisingly, males and females did not swim together. So there was strict sort of sex segregation in the use of these pools. But perhaps surprising to some of your listeners, um, blacks and whites swam together. And so I found um, you know, numerous, I mean, lots and lots of evidence that the standard practice in these public bathing pools was for blacks and whites to swim together at the same time and to do so really without incident. Um, there's, there's really good evidence from even a city like St. Louis that has um, kind of a Southern heritage and a Southern kind of social sensibility to it, whereas blacks and whites swam together in the bathing pools in St. Louis. Um, there's also good evidence from Philadelphia in which there's a, a reformer who visited one of the, the Philadelphia bathing pools who noticed that, you know, blacks and whites swam together and there was no problem. It didn't even really um, warrant much of a comment. Um, and, and, and the other thing is that, that, that pool use at this time divided along class lines as well, that these pools were very much intended to serve the poor and the working classes in cities, whereas at the same time, in the late 19th or early 20th century, there were private athletic clubs. Um, probably the most famous one was the New York Athletic Club, which also had pools at its um, facility, but that obviously was targeting a very different demographic, that that was a fitness institution um, targeted for the, the well-to-do members of the, the private athletic clubs. But the, the, the first municipal pools were baths intended to serve the poor and their use divided along um, class and sex lines, but not along racial lines. Can you talk about the construction of municipal pools in the 20s and 30s in this country? I mean, these weren't small five-lane pools, were they? They were rather large at times. Yeah, and, and one of the things for, for your listeners to understand is that the intended purpose of municipal pools was sort of redesigned, reconsidered, reconceived several times. So the earliest pools were intended as baths. After the germ theory disease transmission, pools were redefined as, as exercise and fitness facilities. Um, during the, the, the 19, you know, the early 20th century, there were several pools opened up in Chicago that were located essentially on playgrounds, and they were intended to serve almost like playground facilities for poor immigrant African-American working class kids. But then when we jump ahead to the 1920s and the 1930s, which is the period you're asking about, pools were once again reconceived. And the reconception of pools and the redesign of pools during the 1920s and 1930s was as leisure facilities, as leisure institutions. And so cities throughout the country built thousands of municipal pools during the 1920s and 1930s, and many of them were, were very, very large pools, um, larger even than, say, football fields. There were pools that were circular, that were 400 feet in diameter, um, the largest pool that, that, that I've come across uh, was the Fleischacker Pool in San Francisco, which is where I know you're based. It was opened in 1925. It was over 1,000 feet long and 150 feet wide. And when you see pictures of the Fleischacker Pool, there are lifeguards out in the middle of it in rowboats. 
um, it, it, it was almost the, something like a pond or a lake. Um, and, and, and that was the largest, but there were lots of pools that were as large as football fields, and they were intended to serve as leisure resorts. So not only were they very large, but there were also oftentimes artificial sand beaches that were built around them. There were broad concrete decks for sunbathing. There were grassy areas for playing. And, and those pools became um, sort of you know, popular um, civic institutions. So unlike the earlier bathing pools or the playground pools, which were located in, in poor neighborhoods, the, the leisure resort pools of the interwar years were located in centralized areas, oftentimes kind of the main park within a, a, a town or a city. And they attract, and there's good evidence that I was able to find for this, they attracted sort of all levels of society. And so working class and middle class and well-to-do would all use these pools. And the other important sort of social change that occurred at these leisure resort pools is that um, city officials for the first time allowed males and females to use them at the same time. And so that the, the leisure resort pools of the 1920s and 1930s were, were gender integrated, which marks a, a, a critical social change from the earlier pools, all of which were, were sex segregated. You talk about the progression of how the pools became a community meeting place where families could spend leisure time together and young people could mingle across the gender divide. Now, as this was occurring, the bathing costumes, in particular for women of the 19th century and the early 20th century, was slowly being replaced by the one-piece, popularized by Australian swimmer Annette Kellerman. And later on, the two-piece bathing suit came into vogue. Can you speak about how the new swimming fashion contributed to making these pools racially segregated. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there are a couple of points. I mean, the, fir the first one is, and I won't dwell on this for too long, is, is my argument is that the combination of, of, of gender integration and the shrinking size of swimsuits for both males and females, so that both males and females are showing more and more and more of their unclothed bodies at the sort of visually and physically and socially intimate spaces of an outdoor swimming pool, it causes pools to become sort of sexualized, um, sexually charged public spaces. And, and there's a good deal of evidence from the time in which commentators are describing, you know, sort of why are these large leisure resort pools so popular? Why are they literally attracting thousands and thousands and thousands of people at the time? And many commentators surmise that it's precisely because that they've become sort of a voyeur's paradise of being able to see other people mostly unclothed in their sexually charged spaces. Um, and they're a good space for sort of making a date, socializing with people. I mean, one of the unique aspects of a swimming pool is not only the, the intimacy involved, the visual intimacy, the physical intimacy involved, but, but it's also the socializing, that people would spend sort of hours at a pool socializing with one another. It gives an opportunity to, to get to know one another, to get to know neighbors, or for, for, for males and females to sort of flirt with one another, make a date. Um, and this all then leads to the, the, the second component of your question, which is that, is, as I mentioned before, 
the, the, the public pools, at least in northern cities, during the late 19th and early 20th century were racially integrated. Blacks and whites used them together, but as we've talked about, males and females did not. During the 1920s and 1930s, when cities opened up large numbers of pools, many of them these leisure resort type pools that I've described, and they allow males and females to start swimming there together. The size of swimsuits shrink. They become sexually charged public spaces. That was the main reason why public officials in northern cities and white swimmers in northern cities imposed racial segregation and racial exclusion. And so it's important, I think, for your listeners to, 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 to understand that the primary cause for racial segregation and racial exclusion at swimming pools, at least in the North and in the West, which again occurred during the 1920s and 1930s, was gender integration. You write about the legal segregation that was put in place to prevent blacks from using these pools, but in some places there weren't legal statutes to prevent black people from using the pool. However, segregation was done through other means. Can you talk about this? Yeah. So in, in the southern United States, not surprisingly, um, racial segregation was mandated by law and rigorously enforced by the, you know, by, by the state, by, by, by government, by public officials. And the same was true in, in, in kind of the border states. So when you look at a city such as St. Louis or Baltimore, Maryland, the swimming pools in St. Louis and Baltimore were officially segregated along racial lines. And so what would typically happen is a city like St. Louis might have seven or eight um, public pools, and, and one of those public pools would be um, accessible to um, African-American residents. And, and what I found is that very few cities offered these leisure resort pools for African-Americans. Instead, the leisure resort pools were um, open only to whites, and the, the, the one Jim Crow pool accessible to black residents tended to be a smaller, oftentimes older, kind of dilapidated pool that was not nearly as appealing. And so in, in the border state cities, there was official de jure racial segregation. Now, further north, in cities such as Philadelphia or Chicago or New York um, or Pittsburgh, that there was not official segregation. And in some cases, this is because there were state laws in northern cities that prohibited um, racial discrimination at public facilities. And so public officials could not officially impose racial segregation. Instead, it fell to white swimmers to impose de facto segregation and de facto um, exclusion. And there, there's many instances that I write about in my book about this, but a particularly sort of clear one is in Pittsburgh, that throughout the 1920s, blacks and whites swam together in several of the public swimming pools in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, in large part because Pittsburgh had not yet gender integrated its pools. So in the 1920s, the, the, the swimming pools, the public pools in Pittsburgh remained gender 
segregated. And, 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 and so blacks and whites continue to use them together, which had been the pattern for well over a generation. And the Pittsburgh Courier, which is the African-American newspaper in Pittsburgh, um, you know, wrote several articles commenting upon that, that no trouble arises at these pools. Um, however, in 1931, Pittsburgh opened up a large resort pool in Highland Park which is a park in Pittsburgh um, located sort of on the, the, west, um, the western part of, of the city of Pittsburgh. And it was near a variety of diverse neighborhoods, including a neighborhood in which many African-Americans live. And so when the pool first opened up in 1931, African-Americans came on that first day to try to enter the pool, assuming that they would be able to use it just as they had other public pools in the area. But on that first day, the, 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 the attendance, the sort of the admission attendance, singled out every single identifiably black person and asked to verify that person's health certificate. And here we see an indication of these concerns about cleanliness and health. Well, of course, none of the, the prospective black swimmers had this health certificate, and so they were all prevented from entering. Um, that night, some leaders with the local NAACP then went and approached the city's mayor and said, hey, are you trying to exclude black swimmers from Highland Park Pool? And the mayor said, no, we will no longer have any health certificate requirements. Sorry about that. The next day, a group of about 50 African-Americans came to, and these are teenagers. I mean, this is something that's important to understand. Um, and, and actually, President Obama talked about this just yesterday. Um, in his eulogy um, for, for John Lewis. Um, that we're talking about teenagers here, sort of kids doing this. Um, sort of a group, uh, like about 50 African-American teenagers sort of show up to Highland Park Pool. They're admitted, but once they enter the water, groups of white swimmers descended upon them and punched them and kicked them and held them under the water um, and used violence as a way to drive them out of the pool. Um, African-Americans still tried to come back and use Highland Park Pool, but this time gangs of whites would be waiting for them on the outside of the pool and would throw stones at them. They had clubs and would hit them with clubs. Um, and, and, and in this way, they used violence and eventually the threat of violence as a way to impose sort of racial segregation and racial exclusion from Highland Park Pool. Um, and, and it wasn't just that this happened in Pittsburgh. Um, there's many other cities and towns in the northern United States where violence was used as the means of imposing segregation and exclusion. How did the pools finally end up becoming integrated? Can you talk a little bit about the legal process that was involved in challenging this systemic racism? Yeah, in, in, in short, what, what happens is, is the civil rights movement. And in the, the traditional telling of the civil rights movement that you read about in textbooks or that is commonly presented um, in documentaries and on TV programs, it, it focuses on sort of the, the, the desegregation of lunch counters, the desegregation of transportation. So you've got the sit-ins and the freedom rides. 
um, and the desegregation of schools, so very famously the Brown v. Board of Education decision, um, and then also focuses um, on, on voting rights, so the Mississippi Freedom Summer of 1964. Um, and so it's, it, it's about sort of um, voting rights, and it's about desegregation, but the traditional narrative of the civil rights movement focuses on the desegregation of things like lunch counters, um, schools, and, 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 and also to a certain degree, um, sort of residences and neighborhoods and buses and transportation. Swimming pools were also a very, very important site of racial desegregation and of civil rights struggles. And, and in fact, the, the, the civil rights struggles over desegregating public swimming pools um, actually begin very early. They begin immediately following World War II. And so I write about examples um, from 1948, 1949, 1950, in which in part inspired by the democratic rhetoric that comes out of World War II. Um, I mean, World War II was such an important um, 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 inspiration for African Americans and whites as well. Um, I mean, one of the things we sometimes forget about was that large numbers of whites after World War II participated in these desegregation struggles as well. Um, but that, that World War II provided considerable inspiration with, with sort of the rhetoric, I mean, the unity of the war effort and then the rhetoric of fighting against sort of Nazism and Japanese militarism and, and highlighting and celebrating the, 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 the ideals of America in terms of democracy, equality, um, freedom. And, and that resonated in a powerful way so that in the wake of World War II, um, African-Americans, and especially led by the NAACP, but also other civil rights organizations, many of which were biracial civil rights organizations, began to try to dismantle racial segregation and racial inequality, especially at public facilities. And in swimming pools was one of the key sites in which these very early desegregation struggles, these civil rights struggles occurred. Um, and, and, and oftentimes it was just local protests. It was um, local African-Americans, again, sometimes teenagers who would spearhead efforts to desegregate a local pool and they would do so by going to that pool, seeking admission. And then if being denied admission, they would write letters to newspapers. In some cases, they would picket um, and protest their exclusion from these pools. Um, in other cases, lawsuits were filed. These were typically initiated by the local chapters of the NAACP. And so in 1948, the local chapter of the NAACP in Warren, Ohio, filed suit against the city for racial segregation in its pools. That same year, the NAACP, excuse me, in Montgomery, uh, West Virginia, filed suit against its local city. And, and eventually that suit that originated out of Montgomery, West Virginia, made its way before a federal judge who ruled in their favor and ruled that, that the way in which that pool was being operated on a racially exclusionary basis was unconstitutional. Um, and then that ruling got applied to Warren, Ohio. And then Warren, Ohio was forced by a court order to desegregate its public pools. 
And then in 1950, a, a, a major case that originated out of St. Louis made its way before a federal judge named Hubie, um, Ruby Hewlin, who in a very, very important decision ruled that the racial segregation that occurred at pool. So in the cases of Montgomery and Warren, it was the case that there was only one pool and whites could use that pool and blacks could not. And so that was clearly unconstitutional, even by the standard of the Plessy v. Ferguson case back in 1896, because there was no equal treatment here. But St. Louis did have a Jim Crow pool that black Americans, black residents could use. And yet Ruby Hewlin said, that still isn't good enough. That the pools for whites are these large leisure resort pools. The pool for African-Americans is a small dilapidated pool. Clearly these facilities aren't equal. But then he went a step further. And he said, what about an African-American who has to walk past a whites-only pool and go much further across town to get to the only Jim Crow pool? Is he receiving equal treatment before the law? And what's fascinating is that Thurgood Marshall, who would go on to argue the Brown v. Board of Education decision before the Supreme Court and then become a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, he was at that time in 1950 when the St. Louis case was decided, he was the, the, the head of the national sort of NAACP, the head lawyer for the NAACP. He read Judge Hewlin's decision and he wrote out in hand, I found this note in the National Archives, um, in, the, in the NAACP archives, which is oh, it's actually housed at the Library of Congress, excuse me. He hand wrote a note saying, this is really good. The book is entitled Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America, written by Dr. Jeff Wiltsey, professor of history at the University of Montana in Missoula, the winner of several awards, including the Alan Nivens Prize of the Society of American Historians. And I would encourage everyone to read this extraordinary work. Dr. Jeff Wiltsey, we wish you and your family well during this time of crisis in our country, and thank you again for joining us on Crossing the Lane Lines. Ah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. If you are a subscriber to this podcast, then you've no doubt seen our cover photo showing a young black woman looking on in terror as a white man pours liquid into a motel swimming pool. This picture is an iconic image from the civil rights era, and the young woman is Mimi Jones a veteran civil rights activist who passed away on July 26, 2020, at the age of 73. Throughout her life, Mimi was a tireless champion for justice and equality. On July 1, 1964, Mimi was asked to take part in a swim-in at a whites-only motel in St. Augustine, Florida. The hotel manager, James Brock, was so incensed that he grabbed a jug of muriatic acid and began dumping it into the pool. The acid, diluted by the water, irritated Mimi's face and eyes, but otherwise left her and the other protesters unharmed. Images of this nonviolent protest were splashed across newspapers nationwide. If there were any wavering votes, said David Nolan, a historian of the St. Augustine protest, all they had to do was look at that horrifying picture and they would say, this is not what we want America to be. We need to pass that law. On July 2nd, 
1964, the day after the swim-in, the Civil Rights Act passed in the Senate. I have several heroes that I admire in the swim community for their amazing achievements in the water. And this woman is one of them. Mimi, thank you for your courage, your commitment to justice, and your willingness to make good trouble. And if I end up being a quarter of the person you were throughout your whole life, I'll have done well. Goodbye, dear sister. I hope that we can swim together someday in the calm waters of peace. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines, signing off.